university professors spend a lot of time talking to each other about popular culture in academic journals and at academic conferences. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals and I want to talk to you. Some of the most brilliant thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard, and I'm on a mission to change that. Brilliant people, fascinating conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you are. This is the Deconstruction Workers podcast. I am Dr. Christopher Bell, and we are back to our regular schedule. As I talked about in our last couple of episodes, things were a little a little weird around here and still are. We are definitely still in coronavirus quarantine, but we are back up to speed in terms of the podcast and also back up to speed in terms of the topics as well. We're getting back to popular culture writ large. And this week we are talking Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which should be a really great conversation and should also probably not stick just to Buffy. If you talk about Buffy, you're going to have to talk about Angel. And if we talk about Angel, it'll probably spill over into all kinds of Joss Whedon stuff. And that's just going to be the way that it is. Joining me today on the line are Dr. Lauren Kamachi. Dr. Lauren Kamachi is an independent scholar now in Oh, you're you're out of Philadelphia. You're in Ohio now. Yeah? Yes, I am in Cleveland, Ohio. Cleveland, That's Ohio. That. That's right. And also on the line with this is Dustin Dunaway. Dustin is the chair of English and Communication at Pueblo Community College in Pueblo, Colorado. Welcome back to the show, Lauren and Dustin. Thank you. Thank you for having us back. Heck yeah. So an interesting thing has happened, which has sort of prompted this conversation because some of you are probably sitting there like why are we still talking about this show that went off the air 17 years ago and the answer is because as many parents do i am at the stage where i get to begin to share some of my very favorite popular culture with my daughter who is now a seventh grader and this show is hitting right around the a really good time for us to enter into some interesting conversations that are marginally age inappropriate, but not really. And I'm her parent, so you don't have to worry about it. But what we are doing is we're we're getting to talk a little bit about what pop culture was like in the late 90s and early 2000s and what kids were watching at the at that time compared to what she's watching now. And also I love this show with all my heart and soul and it's been fun to share with her. The other thing is several of us, myself and Dustin included, about a year about a year ago, roped Lauren into starting to watch this show. Yeah. I remember. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Lauren had never seen it before. And so a lot of us sort of badgered her into it. And so now having finished the series, this is our opportunity to really talk about her experience as well as an adult coming into this text and what that was like for her. So all kinds of fun stuff on tap. I have talked an awful lot already. So that's quite the setup for today. I'm going to turn it over to you two. And I'm going to say, where do you want to start? Well, I do think it's as you're experiencing right now. And as we experience with Lauren, it's always great to share the the pop culture thing that you love with another person. So you can kind of re-experience it vicariously through them for the first time. And a lot of times when I share things, I'll wind up watching the other person to see like, oh, this is, this is, wait, wait for this. Okay. And then you, you get to like re-experience it again for the first time. Are you laughing at the good parts? <laughs> <laughs> so I remember, I remember when I was working my way through the series, I got to the season finale of, is it season two with the principal or is that season three? It's both. So, okay. the, yeah. The really good exit line. Well, gosh. The, <laughs> when I remember, I was in my hotel room at the Southwest Popular Culture Association Conference, and I watched that episode, and I came back down to session. and was like, guys, guys. <laughs> so you actually had a live version of that reaction because I was in my room watching it when I was actually with you all rather than in my home. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
So maybe we should start with a little background history because number one, if you have not watched all of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and probably actually all of Angel as well, this is going to be a completely spoilerific eff- yeah, turn episode. This off. Yeah, turn this off. We're gonna we're gonna spoiler so many things over the next uh, little bit here. So, if you have, you may not know sort of the germination of this or or where it came from. Buffy the Vampire Slayer ran on started on WB when the WB it was one of the first shows actually on the WB network. Uh, it started in 1997. I believe in March-ish of 97. And it concluded in 2003 on UPN and maybe Dustin. Because Dustin is our relative. Dustin has published quite a bit in Joss Whedon studies. Uh, He does a lot of work around Joss Whedon's work and can talk maybe a little bit about how a show starts on one network and ends on a whole different network. So it ran from from 97 to 2003, seven seasons, with an eighth season that came out in graphic novels and serialized comic books, still written by all the same people, just moved into a different medium. And it was... It has been called quite often one of the greatest television shows ever made, but it was definitely more of a critical success than it was a an audience ratings success because it was mostly watched by teenagers and young adults. And pretty much if you were over about 25 or 30 at the time, you were not, you were not watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So... It was definitely a very young-oriented show, but it there there's a, a an interesting history to it and where it comes from and how it gets on air. So I think I I think that's the basic information. But I'll turn it over to Dustin to sort of fill in the fill in the flesh flesh that out. Fill in when the just gaps. as a brief interruption here, if it helps give our listeners context, I'm in my early thirties. So I would not have even had the opportunity to watch this live when it came out. I would have been too young for that have to have been appropriate. So I would not have been able to watch it when it was coming out. And I don't think I would have been interested in it at the time because people who would have been in there, uh, you know, at my age at that time would not have thought it was cool. Uh, and my parents certainly wouldn't have let me watch it. <laughs> right. And, and both Dustin and I are right in the demographic of people that were the target audience, basically, for this for this program. Right. That just makes me feel my, old now. <laughs> right. We're both, right. We're we, as as we have talked about on several occasions, Dustin. We are far older than we think we are. That's true. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So maybe one of the things that we need to do is kind of go back and talk about how such a ridiculous property came to be made in the first place. Because whenever I recommend Buffy the Vampire Slayer to someone, the first thing that they say is, I'm not watching that. <laughs> what? Why would you think that I would be interested in anything called Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Which was kind of the point of the original Joss Whedon's original vision for it, which was to take all of those blonde woman walking down the alley getting stalked by a killer and she's helpless to take all of that and turn it on its ear and when they went to make the the feature film which was 1992 i think it was it was clear that the the director and the stars just didn't understand what he was going for kind of that post-ironic post-modernist sort of way of looking at things and the, the movie is kind of good for what it is. I still kind of enjoy the movie, but it's not the series. No, it really isn't. The The movie, interestingly enough, it has a whole different vibe to it. Because I don't think that the people who made the movie understood what the, what it was supposed to be. Right, which is this a, is the very first time I'm hearing that there's a movie. I've, I've you've never heard there's wow. a movie. No, I did not. Oh, wow. the very first time I'm looking at the Wikipedia page. <laughs> the movie came out uh, as Dustin said. It came out in 1992. 
and the big star of that movie was not Buffy. The yeah. big star of that movie was Luke Perry, who at the time was on Beverly Hills 90210 and was really kind of the draw for that movie. Christy Swanson had been in some stuff, but she was not a, a huge name at the time. She had been little bit parts in things like Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Pretty in Pink and some other stuff. He but just she died, wasn't didn't a. He? Luke Perry, yes. Luke yeah. Perry did yeah. just pass away. That is true. So Christy Swanson hadn't been in a whole bunch of stuff. And what I remember, the thing that got me into the theater was that there was rumors floating around that there was a cameo by Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> and that's really the the thing that we were like, oh, well, we got to go see that. I mean, it, that's where I came into the film. I came into it because of the ridiculous premise, I think. Just the idea that it was kind of a horror movie. Uh, I was a really big fan of the 1980s vampire movie Fright Night. And it felt kind of like it was going to be another one of those. But yeah, if you were going into it as a fan of Pee Wee Herman, I don't know if you came out of it (laughs) with your view of Paul Rubens intact. (laughs) (laughs) He definitely stands out. And I think he's... You know, the the shining star of the show, even though he has a bit role, but definitely different from what you might expect. But not really, because now we're going to go down a very tiny rabbit hole. Because, so when I was a kid, from the time I was maybe like 11 or 12 until, you know, really until now, but at least through high school, I was a voracious obsessed viewer of HBO comedy specials. I used to watch, I used to like sneak HBO comedy specials. Other kids sneak liquor out of the liquor cabinet or whatever. (laughs) I would sneak HBO comedy specials really late at night when my parents were already asleep and I would sneak into our family room and I would watch these Andrew Dice Clay and George Carlin and all these, all these really great comedian. Well, you know, some great comedians, some not so great, but I would watch them on this really low volume. And Pee Wee Herman, Paul Rubens, has an amazing HBO comedy special from like 81, yeah, probably 1981, where it's his character, but it's a lot more adult. It's a lot more adult oriented. It's a lot more, there's a lot more sexual innuendo jokes. There's a lot more. Well, certainly then Pee-wee's Playhouse, which is where a lot of people come into Pee-wee Herman. (laughs) No, but there's still a lot in that. (laughs) Well, sure. But, I mean, I had known Pee-wee Herman as a comedian, as a stand-up, for years before that show came out. So when I saw him in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I was like, oh, this is old Pee-wee Herman. This is not Saturday morning cartoon Pee-wee Herman. No, and he is definitely the standout, I think, that most fans of the movie will will cite. Christy Swanson's okay. Donald Sutherland's okay. Luke Perry is Luke Perry. But right. most fans who, who say that they're fans of the movie will cite Pee Wee Herman as one of the reasons why they're fans of the movie. My face right now. I, I know you guys can't see my face, but I'm Googling... Images of you have to watch the movie. I had no where I had no idea there was a movie. This is important content, and it will be right. in my life. How do you watch it? I mean, this is a rabbit hole. But... And it might be better that you watched the series first, and then go first. back and look at the movie. Yeah, and then you can see. Oh, I see why he wanted to continue with this, and I see his his thesis now in. I can't imagine it not as a series. I can't imagine it not as a series. They screwed that movie up so badly. They screwed it up so badly because they saw that there were funny parts and they tried to turn it into a comedy rather than seeing it as sort of a teen horror drama that needed comedy to lighten it up a little bit. So that's what the TV does. What the TV show does is it leans more into the supernatural elements and really more into the dramatic elements with funny stuff happening every now and then. And in the movie, they flip it, and that's why it doesn't work. 
Right. In um, dramatic studies, that would be a thing that we call bathos, telling the joke at the end, having that sense of humor. But the sense of humor has to kind of release tension. It's not the thing in and of itself, at least not in most of Joss Whedon's work. And that's not the last time that that happened to him. In fact, many of his screenplays that he didn't have control over, the director or the producers just didn't understand. Alien Resurrection is probably one of them. Titan A.E., which he also wrote, is another. But if you look at most of the other work that he's done, even collaboratively, you can definitely see that dramatic structure followed by a little joke at the end just to kind of release that tension. I was just watching Speed last night, which he did a, a rewrite on, and and you can definitely feel that Whedon-esque sort of patter between Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock. So it, it's just interesting to see the, the idea of the author, which is another thing that we talk about in literature studies, that our auteur theory of when you have control of something, it looks a lot different than when you have to collaborate with someone who maybe not doesn't get what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, and and to be f- quite honest, Whedon has a history of people not quite understanding what he's trying to do. This wasn't the first time, and it certainly wasn't the last time, where what he was trying to do didn't line up with what studio executives or television network executives thought of as marketable or as having potential. Right. X-Men comes to mind. You guys are blowing my mind. I didn't, I just don't, I, I purposely didn't do my, I'm not a big giant Joss Whedon fan. So for me, this was, I just didn't do any prep coming into this <laughs> on purpose. And I just, I didn't know any of this. I didn't. That's okay. This is know. this is good podcasting because we get to see your mind blown right now. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So Buffy comes into the universe. Buffy comes into the television universe, at least, at a very interesting and specific time. In 1995, Warner Brothers wanted to get into the television network game. Because they had seen, over the course of the late 80s, Fox come into existence and rise up to a major network. Because it was thought of at the time that no, there would be no more major broadcast networks beyond the big three, beyond NBC, ABC, and CBS, because they had such a huge you know, market share, it really was this oligopoly of just these three companies. And then Fox pushed into the market on the strength of a lot of things, but mostly aiming for a younger audience and pushing the envelope a little bit in terms of its programming. So in the early days of Fox, you had things like Married with Children, you had the Tracy Ullman show, which spawned The Simpsons, 21 Jump Street. You had all of these shows that were aimed at a younger audience and were really edgy. By the time the mid-90s roll around and Fox is a is, is a major player, Warner Brothers is like, we can do that too. So Warner Brothers comes on air with the WB, and they were also shooting for a younger audience as well. Warner Brothers really was pushing cartoons. Some of its first programs were stuff like Animaniacs and Earthworm Jim. It was pushing itself as uh, as a teenager network. It came on the air with a bunch of cartoons, things like the Wayans Brothers, which was pushing for a teenager audience, and a couple of years in... Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Buffy the Vampire Slayer was the first big successful show for the WB. At the time, the biggest show on the network when Buffy the Vampire Slayer came on the air was Seventh Heaven, if you can remember that show. <laughs> oh, I, yes. I was allowed to watch that. <laughs> Seventh Heaven was the biggest was the biggest show that they had. I mean, and they had the Steve Harvey show, of course, and Jamie Foxx show and Sister Sister. <laughs> Sister, sister, right. The WB was pushing towards a uh, quote-unquote urban audience, which those of us who are black people understand always means black people. But they were pushing towards a, a more urban audience, which means that Buffy the Vampire Slayer was not the kind of show that WB was putting on the air. People forget it didn't debut. 
Buffy the Vampire Slayer didn't debut. It was a mid-season replacement. Hmm. It was not like a big fall series, hey, we're going to put this on here. It was a mid-season replacement. Do you know what it replaced? Savannah. That's Savannah. That's the reason why I, one of the reasons why I actually started watching because I was watching Savannah. <laughs> I was one of, I was, I was the one person who was watching Savannah. <laughs> and uh, I think that as you did back in the nineties, you let the VCR record it at a specific time. And mm-hmm. I just wound up recording a bunch of Buffy the Vampire Slayer episodes and thought, eh, why not? And that's how I got hooked. I will tell my own embarrassing story because I'm right there with you. Because I didn't start watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer until the middle of the end, really, of season two. And the only reason I started watching Buffy is because it came on before Felicity. (laughs) And I was recording Felicity and I had mistimed it and... I had recorded an episode of Buffy before Felicity, so I started watching it, and then I was like, oh, okay, I guess I could watch this too. So <laughs> the the nighttime teenager soap operas were a huge, <laughs> a huge draw uh, for Buffy. <laughs> Buffy comes on the air, 1997, and here's, here's, here's where we are. Oh, so that's so much history. So much history of the show. Just to get on the air, we have not even actually talked about the program yet. Let's refresh our, both for ourselves and for our audience, let's refresh our understanding of the show. The show centers around Buffy Summers. Buffy Summers is played by Sarah Michelle Gellar. Sarah Michelle Gellar at the time was coming off of a bunch of soap opera stuff. Days of Our Lives, I think. No, uh, All My Children. I think she was a soap opera kid who moved into her own television series. Buffy Summers moves from Los Angeles, which is the setting of the film. She has to move out of Los Angeles because in the film, spoiler alert for Lauren, in the film, the last thing she does is burns down the school. (laughs) To get rid of to get rid of all the vampires, she traps all the vampires inside and she burns down the school. And so, because she burned down the school, they ship her off to Sunnydale. Sunnydale is a fictional California city. Uh, it's it's a kind of San Luis Obispo kind of a rich so that's people why place. She was expelled. Yes, but we never know why. Oh my yes, God. but we know why if you've seen the movie. Right, but, but okay. Oh my god. And he kind of writes it as a sequel to his original script of the movie, so it doesn't line up exactly, but right. yeah. But this explains so much cuz there's I feel like remembering in the first episode being it was in an in media res sort of situation. I felt like I was just plopped into it without any context, and now I know why I didn't watch the context. <laughs> right. Jeez, <sighs> oh, guys. Buffy shows up first day of school having lost her watcher we never we never really talk about her original watcher ever again having lost her friends and her parents having split up and gotten a divorce because of her high school hijinks buffy shows up in sunnydale and is killing vampires and meets two new friends so now we have willow rosenberg played by Allison Hannigan. Allison Hannigan, most recently from Penn & Teller's Fool Us, but also, you know, the entire run of How I Met Your Mother. She was also, uh, uh, she was a film actress at the time. She had, she was coming off of monster hit for me when I was like 14 years old. My stepmother was an alien. Mm-hmm. Dan Aykroyd, it was, it was quite a, quite an interesting film and by interesting i mean you could probably skip it <laughs> um and thank god for Anna, allison hannigan because she really owns most of the episodes <laughs> yes if you go onto youtube you can actually find the original pilot that they shot with a different actress playing willow and it's like night and day oh they do- they totally dodged a bullet i mean i'm sure riff reagan is uh wonderful human being and a fabulous actress she ended up landing a role on the sitcom sisters so she turned out fine but they totally dodged a bullet allison hannigan over the course of seven seasons is the heart and soul of that show bar none 
the other friend she meets is Xander Harris. Xander is... We could do a whole. We could do a whole. <laughs> He's a Ron whole Weasley. Let's just say Xander. it. He's he is very he is very Ron Weasley ish. He's the non. He's, he's the, there specifically because he's loyal. Well, he's there specifically because he's the he's the regular guy. Yeah. That's the most interesting thing about Xander in the in the over the course of the series is that he everyone else in the series eventually has some sort of superpower, magic power, some sort of something except Xander. Xander is the only person who never has anything, which is a really, really important plot point that is five years of plant and payoff. It's five years of setup because, because Xander has no powers whatsoever and is just the regular guy, he's the only person who can save the world. There will come a point in the series where everyone's powers are the problem Mm -hmm. and the only person who can save everyone and everything is regular old Xander. It's actually one of the most heart-wrenching, heartbreaking season finales of any show I've ever seen. But we'll we'll get there because we've got we've got a lot of ground to cover before we can talk about and the that. fact that Xander is really what we call a, a an author's avatar or a director's avatar. This is Joss Whedon inserting himself into the story because Xander is very much a reflection of Joss Whedon. Joss Whedon doesn't think of himself as Angel, who is the romantic interest. He thinks of himself mm-hmm. as the best friend, which should give you a little bit of insight into the psychology of Joss Whedon, I think. Yeah. Because most authors tend to put themselves as... You've done an episode on the Mary Sue. The author insert that's amazing at everything. Xander is amazing at nothing. <laughs> which, which, right. which which makes it odd for him to be the author insert character. Yeah, but we, we, do, we do end up really attached to Xander in a lot of ways. Yeah. So those three... Willow, Xander, and Buffy are the core of the show. Very quickly in the first season, we also meet Giles, Rupert Giles, who is the librarian of the school, but he's a secret plant because he's not really a librarian. He's really Buffy's watcher. He's a member of the Watcher's Council, which we'll talk about here in a second because the Watcher's Council is problematic in so very many ways. So... He is the sort of handler, trainer, watcher of Buffy. We also very early on meet Angel. Angel is a vampire, played by David Boreanaz. Angel sucks in so many ways. (laughs) (laughs) I I cannot stand Angel, ever. I mean, he's kind of awful. I guess he's so awful. I guess I'm just giving him too much credit because he's... David Boreanaz. Yeah. It is is definitely a point of contention within fandom of Buffy, whether or not Angel is a positive or a negative addition. He's got his own whole thing. Girls shouldn't try to fix boys, and he needs some serious fixing. He's so terrible. He's awful. And the other major character over the course of at least the first few seasons is Buffy's mother, Joyce. Yeah. And that's really the the core cast of the show. And then people come in and out. For example, my very favorite character in the entire series, Cordelia Chase. She starts in the show and then she leaves for a little while and she shows up on Angel and then she leaves for a while and then is back and is sort of in and out. Dawn, who is Cousin Oliver into the show in season five. <laughs> Cousin Oliver being a reference to the Brady Bunch, where when the kids on the show get too old and you still need a kid presence, you just bring in another kid out of nowhere, and it's Cousin Oliver, who is cute and young and just like all the other kids used to be. Dawn is definitely Cousin Oliver into this show. She shows up in season five for the last two seasons. Oz, who was played by Seth Green, he comes in 
at the beginning of season two, and he's there for the middle part of the show. Anya, who comes in in season four, I believe, who's a demon who ends up having to become a human. She loses her powers. There is Faith. Faith is the season three arc and then disappears and then comes back. And of course, Spike. Spike shows up at the beginning of season two and is a major player in the show for most of its run. Is that all? Who am, who am I missing? Well, just the, the, the of parade of boyfriends that come in and out. Yeah, yes, there's the parade of boyfriends. I was going to say Riley, but um, it's fine. We, we skip him. That's, that's, yeah. Riley, Riley is the season five sucko. I guess Tara. Tara, yep. Tara, season four, five. Eventually, Andrew, who starts as a villain and then ends up as a as one of the good guys. There is the recurring character of Jonathan, who's who might be interesting to talk yes. about, um, just because I love <laughs> what he represents and how he changes over the course of the the series. Right, right, right. Drusilla, Drusilla is Spike's paramour. And then what's her name too? Uh, Darla. Angel Darla. <laughs> it's like it's some stupid name that would never have been around back right. then. And Darla and Drusilla are both vampires. I often say Drusilla is the best vampire. <laughs> I love Drusilla. I love everything about Drusilla. I think she's great. Juliet Landau is a masterpiece of an actress. And let's not forget Harmony. <laughs> oh, and Harmony. Bless her heart. Poor, poor, poor Harmony. Poor stupid Harmony. Bless poor stupid Harmony. <laughs> yeah, so the show essentially just follows the exploits of these characters as they live on top of the Hellmouth the literal opening to hell and fight off vampires and demons and all of the bad stuff. That's the basic overview of a show. Except there's one super, super important thing. And I know that we're going to get to it later, but one super important thing that you did not mention is when it was switching networks, something really big happens and there's a gap of time, right? Well, yes, I did not mention this because I figured we would get to it in the over the course of. I the... feel like we could tease it. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> yes, something big will happen. You, if you really want to tease it, let's do this. Here's a good place to take a break. We'll come back in two and two, and we'll get back into the conversation. Do you like Stephen King? If you do, I have the perfect podcast for you. My name is Deanna Chapman, and I host Chat Cemetery, a Stephen King podcast where I dive into his novels and all of the TV and movie adaptations of his works. I invite a guest on each week to talk about them one by one in chronological order and just really dive into what it is that makes his books so terrifying, why people choose to adapt certain stories over others, and so much more. If you want to check it out, you can do so wherever you listen to podcasts. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen. And we're back. So we've done all the history of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where it came from, how it got made, and so on and so forth. And so now... I figured we can actually jump into analysis of this show. And we've got a sort of a list of things that we want to talk about. Uh, and the conversation will probably just range all over the place from here. So I know all three of us had things we wanted to bring up. So who wants to start with theirs? Me. I have a new one I didn't have on okay. the list. Okay. We would be remiss if we did not have a discussion of Once More with Feeling. And I am wondering if you guys could start by answering the question of, before this, was it common to have a singing episode of a series? Because every show, when it starts to wander away from being good, does that now. Interesting. I mean, every show I can think of does it now. I can't remember anything. Okay, in 1990, there was a television show. It came on... ABC, and it was a musical. Oh, God. And it was called Cop Rock. Cop Rock? Cop Rock. It was called Cop Rock. 
Stephen Bochco. Yes, Stephen Bochco, who was the executive producer and also, I believe, created the series, right? Uh, I just mm-hmm. remember that it had this god-awful theme by Randy Newman, who every like, <laughs> I know there are some people who very much enjoy Randy Newman. I cannot stand Randy Newman. I don't like his voice. I don't like anything he writes. I don't like that dude You don't like the Toy Story song? Come on. That one's no, like the only okay No, I song. do not. You're rude. Everything he writes sounds exactly the same, and it drives me up the mall. Anyway, Stephen Bochco, in 1990, created this TV musical, which was half cop show, hardcore cop show like Hill Street Blues, and then every now and then they would bust in the song, and it was amazing. And I have to, I have to think, because Joss Whedon is like this much older than me, he's like slightly older than me, I have to think that influenced his thought process about we're going to do a musical episode. I have to think Cop Rock was rolling around in the back of his head somewhere. Oh, my God. So the reason I ask this, not just because it's one of the most famous episodes of Buffy, but also because if you are not currently singing to yourself at home in quarantine, I don't know who you are because I feel like we are (laughs) all doing it. Yes. The other thing is, I'm going to say a thing out loud that I think is right. Joss Whedon's brother is a composer. What? Oh my god! Is that why the music is so, so good? Well, so so during the during the writers' strike, Joss and his brother were hanging out. I believe. Again, I think I'm telling this story right. Joss and his brother were hanging out at his house one day, and they were like, "We can't go to work. There's a writers' strike. Whatever, whatever." And they started just kind of messing around. And they then they started calling up their friends, people they knew, whatever. They're like, we're going to shoot this thing in our garage. It's going to be hilarious. Come be a part of it. And that turned into Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. That's where it came from was just him and his brother Dude. jerking around. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. I, I feel like there's also that influence in where Once More With Feeling comes from. Okay. Can, just for a second, though, if during your time at home you're like, hey, Neil Patrick Harris, can you come over? I want to shoot a silly thing. I <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and Nathan Fillion and right, Felicia right? Day and yeah. like all these great people. He's just like, these are just my <laughs> homies who just live around the block and I'm just going to call them over. We're going to mess around in my garage. It's going to be great. Amazing. It's good to have friends. <laughs> it's good to be yes. legally allowed to see your friends. <laughs> right. We're not right. better about quarantine. We're happy. We have homes that we can stay in. Okay. The other great thing about Once More with Feeling is that it was choreographed by Adam Shankman, who I absolutely love. Adam Shankman, for me, where I come into Adam Shankman, is he was a judge for like eight seasons on So You Think You Can Dance. And I wrote my dissertation about 19 Entertainment and about American Idol and whatever, and so I'm super familiar with So You Think You Can Dance, both from the fan side and from the production side. Adam Shankman, for most people where you'll remember Adam Shankman, is he choreographed Hairspray, 2007. The film version of Hairspray he choreographed. So he's kind of a big deal. And they brought him in to choreograph Once More with Feeling, which I love. I also love that they used all of the actors' actual singing voices in the pre- Including Alison Hannigan, who cannot sing. In the pre- And I really do think it was in the pre-auto-tune. I mean, that didn't exist. So it's not like when you Mm -hmm. hear these- ones now and you watch it okay and i'll say it fight me the first of the mama mia movies <sighs> oh yeah it's totally auto-tune. what a hot garbage fire well and all of the high school musicals and both of the descendants and basically everything that the disney channel does is that weird zombies movie my kids obsessed with all that disney channel stuff is all completely auto-tuned that, though, is what Once More With Feeling could have been, should they have chosen to do it later with actors who couldn't really sing. But they chose to let her rip, and some of them really sing quite well. Others of them, they made it work with what they had. I mean, when Giles and uh, Tara do their little duet, it's like, yes, get it! <laughs> the fact that Allison Hannigan is not a particularly great singer, I like that they worked with that and worked just uh, one or two lines in for her, uh, including one about her her line just being filler. Yes. <laughs> well, I, and I think one, one of the funnier, so two things about this episode. The one funny thing is that I feel very confident that Allison Hannigan asked not to have to sing hmm. 
because it's very clear to me that she is in all of the production numbers, but she is never, she only sings by herself just those two lines. And I think she sort of exercised her seniority there to be like, mm, <laughs> I'm not singing in the show. The other funny part is Michelle Trachtenberg, who plays Dawn, she grew, she's a dancer outside of her acting career. I mean, she grew, she grew up as a dancer. And so she's in all the dance numbers, but she hardly ever sings at all in the show. And I think she probably was like, I'm going to, can we trade? (laughs) I'll do all the dances. If I don't have to do any of the singing at all that, and then other people were like, well, I can't dance. So let's trade. Like, I feel like that. That's amazing. I, so the premise for those who haven't seen the episode, but don't care about spoilers is that, it turns out there's a there's a demon that's making people burst into song randomly and then dance themselves to death. And so the thing that's that really happens throughout the episode is that as they're singing, they're all singing the things that are in their head, but they wouldn't necessarily say out loud. So lots of truths, capital T, truths are told in this episode. And this is sort of a big turning point in that season and also a huge payoff for people who were shipping a certain duo before this happen. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> shipping, of course, as you probably already know, and I probably don't need to explain, but I will anyway. Shipping, short for relationshiping, is the fan practice of wishing or imagining or pretending two characters in a story are in a relationship, even when the author doesn't give you any reason to believe that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Straight up. Without getting, I guess, too far into it, I think that Once More with Feeling is one of those episodes that if you wanted to distill what the draw of Buffy the Vampire Slayer is, that would be one of the ones that you show. The The idea that, yes, they're dealing with a supernatural thing, but the supernatural thing, the value of it, is always exploring some facet of human existence. The, the first three seasons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer are all about going to a high school that's on a hell mouth, but that hell mouth is a metaphor for high school being hell. When you're a teenager. Literally. (laughs) Literally, yes. I think the best metaphor of this show is Buffy in season two. Buffy sleeps with her high school boyfriend and literally turns him into a monster. I I think that 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 is the entire, for me, the entire encapsulation of this this is the thing this show is trying to do. Is it's trying to deal with all of these late teenager issues and problems and whatever and it's doing it through this one very specific metaphor that happens to be super appropriate for what it's trying to accomplish that is that's a really i never thought about it that way but the two sort of most sex centered episodes i can think of that one and the episode in the haunted house with riley Mm -hmm. both Mm -hmm. show the toxicity of just too much yeah Interesting. Yeah, and one of the things that I appreciate about the show that is kind of commonplace now in TV shows, but prior to Buffy wasn't really that commonplace, is the use of motif. Just real quick on the educational tip, motif being some sort of recurring idea or image or sound or color that has some kind of symbolic meaning, some kind of symbolic significance, and we get the central idea or we get the central message by it repeating over and over and over again. So, spoilers. Do it. When Buffy and Angel first sleep together, she wakes up and there's he's gone because he, he stumbled out into the into the alleyway. Yeah, I forgot about that. That was really having silly. Having his having lost his soul. So she wakes up and no one is there and she's puzzled as to where did he go? And then fast forward a couple of seasons later when she goes to college, she sleeps with a man for the first time. And again, he's not there. And then a little later on when she meets Riley, who is a horrible character, but a decent guy, I would say, which is what makes him a horrible character. When she sleeps with him for the first time, she looks over and he's actually there for the first time like she's she's woken up with a man for the first time and we can see that he is he's different just having those callbacks having those motifs the way that it changes 
the symbolism is, is one of the great marks of the show. So Dustin, I would love you to talk a little bit more about that because I feel like a lot of shows, and I, I mean, this is such a typical way of, well, back in my day, shows were better, <laughs> music was better, right? But I mean, it does seem like there are things that, that Whedon did with Buffy that were almost literary that you don't see in many, many other shows. Do you feel like there is something particular about this or is this something you see in other modern shows that you have going on? Because I just feel like you don't see the same, even in shows where doing those callbacks are super important. Let me rephrase that. Even in fandoms where those callbacks are super important, I feel like you lose that in the visual reinterpretation of Harry Potter. You lose that in the visual interpretation of Game of Thrones. You don't get to keep those, whereas because it was a fully audio-visual medium, but it was written like a book, Right, and I think, I'm trying to think of any show that does it quite as well. The only thing that I can come up with is not a drama, it's the comedy, which is How I Met Your Mother, where all of those threads are tied together and you can go back through and see all of the little hints and uh, inside jokes and all of the references back to things. And it's very meticulously plotted. And I think that... <laughs> If we were talking about something like Game of Thrones, that is not a thing that was meticulously plotted. Lost is oh. something that was meticulously plotted for like maybe a season, but then they didn't know what they were doing after that. So <laughs> I will just insert here with a thing that Dustin will uh, probably roll his eyes about because every time we talk about anything, I have to bring it up. But I'm just going to say the good place and then I'm going to walk away. The good place. No, okay. Yes. 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 But that's, I yeah. feel like that's different because it wasn't written like a book, but it was still clever in that same way. This, is, this, this right. feels like a book. Buffy, the way that Buffy unfolds feels literary, where there's real subtleties you pick up on with The Good Place. And I wonder if it's just the nature of the genre because it's a comedy. But hot damn, it's good. Oh, it's so good. I think the good, the, I don't want to get off on talking about the, the good place now because we already have an episode on that. But um, I think that the good place is probably one of the best sitcoms in history, if not the best sitcom, just because there, it was around long enough to make its point And then it left without having to draw things out. You know, right. it, it had four seasons and that's all it needed. And it had a perfect finale. I think in terms of the way that Joss Whedon works, because he is so influenced by Shakespeare, um, an, another one of those those stories of you know just sitting around with friends is he was hanging out with a bunch of actors as they they tend to do. They were just riffing on Shakespeare, and he decided to grab a camera and he had uh, oh who was it uh, Fred. Um, I can't think of the actress's name off the top of my head. Amy Acker. Amy Acker. Yes. Yeah, Thanks. Fred. Fred and just a, a bunch of people that typically work with him and they decided to shoot much ado about nothing they just shot it and released it <laughs> in a weekend yeah okay well, I guess we just do that then right but the people involved with Joss Whedon and Joss Whedon himself are very very into Shakespeare in a way that allows him to bring something different to television because he's not just a TV guy. He is, you know, he's into Shakespeare. He's into philosophy. There are a lot of philosophical references in Buffy. And I think that what you see in other TV shows now is they try to go back and recreate that same sort of high-level intelligence in their writing. But they, they haven't earned it. <laughs> Because the only thing that they know are like mm. the Cliff's notes. So what I'm hearing is more English majors need to write for TV. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that that works. <laughs> Maybe, or more writers need to read one or the other. That's that would be nice. Too much, Chris. <laughs> yeah, so I really I just wanted us to talk about once more with feeling because it's it's one of the more iconic episodes. I mean, I suppose we could talk about other if there's iconic episodes that we should talk about. Well, and when you talk about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, of course, once more with feeling is going to come up first or at least early on because it is such a defining episode of the series. And not just because they're singing and dancing, but like it's a, it's a way that they dropped a ton of exposition 
on everybody without it feeling hammy. It leaned into the hamminess in a way that made it work because otherwise it would have just been like a soap opera, you know, everybody with the camera angles like, (gasps) you know. That is one of the things that Joss Whedon is good at as a writer is finding that fine line between self-reference without it being empty. Like a lot of writers now will try to do a kind of a postmodern, yeah, we, we know that this is a movie or yes, we know this is a TV show or yes, you're reading a book right now and we realize the, the ridiculous premise that we have. But in making fun of that, it's kind of like, well, why am I reading it if you don't care? Why am I watching this if you don't care? If you know that this is just a big joke? And I think that what Joss Whedon does with Buffy particularly is, and also uh, the first Avengers movie, is say, yes, this is a ridiculous premise, but, and we're going to laugh at it a little bit, but also there's some stu- substance here. Yeah, we're going to, it's going to, it's a very much a nudge, nudge, wink, wink kind of a relationship in that the me and the director or me and the writer director, we're both in on the inside joke. And I think that's the the good part about Buffy and actually Avengers as well. But that's the good thing about Buffy is it only takes maybe one or two episodes of watching that show for you to also get brought into the inside joke. So now it's not obstructive for you. It's obstructive for people who don't watch the show, but for you, you're on the inside very quickly. You get to be a part of the club very quickly, which I think is a thing it's is really masterful at that a lot of long form, long series don't do. Compare and contrast something like Buffy with something like Lost, right? With Lost, if you look away from the screen for like five minutes, you're out of the club. You're lost. You're exactly lost. You're out of the club. There's so much catch up. Here, even if you miss the whole first season, really, eh, get in on the second season and you're able to catch right up. It's, It's not that exclusive in its way. Well, My friends, as you can see, we're watching the clock. We are reaching the end of our time together today. But guess what? Surprise, this is only part one. And next time around, in episode four, we will hit part two of this Buffy the Vampire Slayer conversation. But for today, we're gonna we're gonna bid you a fond farewell, you know, once more with feeling. And next week we will uh, next time, rather in two weeks, we'll catch up with you again with more Buffy the Vampire Slayer talk. But right now, for Dr. Lauren Kamachi and for Dustin Dunaway, I am Dr. Christopher Bell. We have been the Deconstruction Workers. Uh, we will see you again in two weeks with the second half of Buffy. Stay safe out there. Wash your hands. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a review wherever you get your podcast fix. Even better, become a sponsor of the show at patreon.com slash podcastdcw. Check out thedeconstructionworkers.com or follow us at facebook.com slash thedeconstructionworkers or on Instagram at deconstructionworkers. This podcast is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for the Deconstruction Workers podcast was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, thank you for supporting alternate scholarship and academic public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is copyright 2020, all rights reserved.